0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So let's kick off this morning with our catechism as we typically do. Catechism provides clear and concise answers for questions of faith that we have. And this week we are on question number 21. So I will go ahead and read the question and then let's all say the answer together. Question 21. What sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God together? One who is truly human and also truly God. Next week, we will, question, we will answer question number 22. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? And bonus, the week after that, we're going to answer the question, why must the Redeemer be truly God? But today we get the special privilege of being able to deep dive into question 21. So we get to answer the the what question before we dive into the why questions. So our question today is what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and truly God. This is called the hypostatic union. So let's, let's just dwell on this answer today. Let's think deeply through it as we find in our text this morning, the true man and the true God, Jesus, demonstrate his divine power with human touch. We find Jesus in two stories. One is within the other. The first has a ruler named Jairus, and he comes to Jesus in desperation because his 12-year-old daughter is dying and he asked Jesus to touch her. Well, on their way to their home, a woman who had suffered from blood for 12 years stops Jesus in desperation to touch him. Both were desperate. Both were suffering. Desperation is something that all of us have felt in some way. Perhaps it's been in small ways at various intervals over time, but at other times... It may have been one big, horrifyingly difficult circumstance. Here we have one event that seems to have taken a turn for the worse. So a father, he runs to Jesus and he begs and he pleads. His only daughter is dying quickly. As a father of one daughter, this is my worst nightmare. Well, in our other story, there's this this woman who has tried everything, doctors and money, but after 12 years, still no solution. Things only kept getting worse. I felt this one too. Our house felt some of this after 12 years of my wife Michelle having hospital stays and strange health issues with no solution, only to find out that it was a rare cancer Behaving rarely So what do we do in these situations? I don't know 12 years of practice and I still don't have the answer. We do anything we do something Yet we know there's only so much we can do Only so much doctors can do only so much mere mortals can do and so Matthew he points us beyond ourselves to the kingdom of God where King Jesus steps into these impossible situations. Here we have two parallel stories, as I said. And in these stories, we find Jesus' presence, touch, and power display his devotion, humanity, and deity. Now, that's a lot packed in there, so let's explain how we're going to roll through this. Instead of going through our passage linearly, We're going to examine each story in in tandem, each story sharing the same three points. We're going to see how Jesus displays his nature, nature to us. First, we'll see Jesus' presence display his devotion to the desperate. Then we'll see Jesus' touch display his humanity to the hurting. And finally, we'll see Jesus' power display his deity to the dying. So again, for the note-takers, first, we'll see Jesus' presence display his devotion to the desperate. Second, we'll see his touch display his humanity to the hurting. And finally, we'll see Jesus' power display his deity to the dying. So it's that, with that in mind, let's read this passage one more time. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. First point, Jesus' presence displays his devotion to the desperate. Jesus makes the first move. He's present. Over the past six weeks, we've been seeing Jesus walk about. Been in crowds, in houses, in boats, at the dock, at the tax office. He's there with the people among them, and all manner of people, most notably the desperate. Lepers, women, and Gentiles, tax collectors, and sinners. In this glimpse of the kingdom, we see that the dwelling place of God is with man. In our parallel stories, let's first look at Jesus' presence in the crowds with the woman. Since the end of Matthew 4, Jesus has been amongst these large crowds. They would follow him from all over, Poor guy could only catch a break when getting in a boat. Imagine, like you want some peace and quiet, you have to go find a boat, you have to get in the boat to be away from everybody. Might have some of you looking for a boat this afternoon, some peace and quiet. So after Jesus leaves the place where Jairus found him, he's he's walking and the, the crowds are following him. Matthew talks about crowds so often in these chapters, but he just leaves this detail out here. But Luke, he says that the crowds were nearly crushing him. It's like the crowds at the end of a golf tournament or the end of a parade when the the ropes get dropped and folks, like, they follow as close as they can to the action. Everybody's kind of tussling and they're they're bumping, all trying to, to stay near. And the woman, she's right in the middle of it. She's looking for him, squeezing her way through. Maybe doing that like little jump trying scene over that person in front of her. It's a mess. But Jesus, he's, he's right in the middle of it too. And there's no ropes. There's no security guards, even if Peter thought he was one. Jesus is present with the desperate. I can't help but see this contrast to the book of Exodus, where the, the presence of God is in fire and smoke on this holy mountain, or even in the, in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies where there's this, this physical veil, a barrier from the people of God. Now, surely God was in the midst of his, of his people during this time, yet the proximity of Jesus as Savior is displaying another level of devotion to his people. The mighty God who split the waters of the Red Sea to deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh. In our scene, he's walking physically within a sea of humanity. Later in the chapter, it says, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out. His disposition to the crowds compelled his presence. As we hear in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He is devoted to the desperate as a baseline, he operates this way publicly and generally, yet sometimes his presence, it's in a quiet room, away from the crowd, away from the distractions like in our story with Jairus' family. As we continue in our parallel stories, he approaches Jairus' home, and even there Jesus finds more crowds. They're in and they're around the house playing a dirge. It's a song of lament for the dead. It's meant to evoke crying and the beating of chests with grief. And that's what the crowds were doing, loudly. In some ways, we get the sense that it's it's a bit of an unserious moment by the crowd. Like they were making noise that was more perfunctory than heartfelt. So it was all the more reason that Jesus decided to take another path of being present for this family, a path where he showed his devotion to the desperate in a quieter moment. There's this transition from all this excitement outside, all of the crowds. Imagine, if you will, so there's this woman who's just been healed spectacularly, and people are stirring, and they're, they're amazed. And all the while, there's this, there's this father who's devastated, and he's, he's trying to pull Jesus along with the, with the tension of wondering if this celebrity, he's going to be pulled away Or or maybe he's not going to make it in time. When they get to the house, this commotion, it doesn't end. The noise is incessant and there's people in the way. Jairus was breaking. So upon seeing this, Jesus changes the scene. He looks around and he sends the crowd out without flinching at their mockery. And he enters a quiet room this girl is laying with only her parents and three of the disciples. Only them. It's the center of the world in that moment. Desperate parents, they wouldn't be anywhere else or with anybody else. The one who has been pressed by seemingly the whole world to perform signs and wonders is standing right next to their helpless daughter. For so long, this intimate presence of God was only enjoyed by the priest entering the Holy of Holies as a representative of the desperate, behind the veil. But at this moment, he himself enters the room to display his devotion to a very desperate father and mother. In both stories, this presence is significant in and of itself. Consider the headline, Miracle worker Jesus mingles with a large crowd then visits mourning family after losing daughter. We hear these types of accounts all the time with celebrities and politicians. It's very common. Cuz we appreciate when people show up. It's often the only thing that we can do. Eliza Hamilton would say that would be enough. Anybody in here not seen Hamilton yet? Like okay, all right, look. Tuesday, all right, it's, it's amazing. Everybody loves it, it's gonna be great. It's, you know, 1776, let's go. So, that's your assignment for this week. Go watch Hamilton, all right. By being present, Jesus shows himself as fully human. And as we've seen in chapter eight, there's no doubt that he could heal by simply saying the word, as the centurion said. Yet, in these stories, he demonstrates his divine power by human touch, In the woman's story, she touches his robe. In Jairus' family story, Jesus takes the daughter by the hand. In both stories, Matthew is emphasizing our second point, that touch displays his humanity to the hurting. Jesus' touch displays his humanity to the hurting. For the woman in our story, she becomes increasingly aware of this as she drew near to him to touch his robe. First, she view him correctly as accessible to her. She says, if I can just touch his robe. By, coming, by becoming in body, Jesus not only stands in the midst of them, but he makes himself available not only to doubters like Thomas, but also to the hurting, who, when, when they touch the Savior, they're affirmed in their worth because they can actually feel, I mean, really feel the one whose image they bear. He's dignifying them. No matter how badly they're hurting, they have worth because their flesh is like his flesh. Again, consider the difference compared with God at Mount Sinai establishing his mountain as holy in Exodus 19. He gives Moses explicit instruction that the people do not come near, that they do not touch the mountain lest they die. It is this same God who enters into the world clothed in humanity so that his people could draw near despite being unclean. He brushes up against them, eats with them, reclines with them, touches them. For this woman, we don't get much of what's going on in her head, but we can infer her soul is crying out, How long, O Lord, after so many years of dealing with this ailment? So whatever trepidation she may have been experiencing, the feelings that caused her to tremble, she had to act. Second, she was a recipient of his dignifying humanity. One that didn't condemn her for law breaking, but affirmed her for her faith. This was even more deeply understood because of the implications of her action. Similar to the leper, her issue of blood ostracized her from the community. Leviticus 15 deemed a man or a woman with a discharge unclean for a time. And for this woman, that uncleanness remained for 12 years. For most, this sort of thing might happen occasionally and be a temporary quarantine. Yet for this woman, it was 12 years of not being able to approach the place of worship. Exclusion from times of rejoicing and festivals the loneliness and the pain of bearing the burden by herself. It must have been terrible. And more so, if she sat or touched others, they would become unclean and under the same quarantine. So even going into this crowd would have had some consequences. And so much more the premeditating action, premeditated action of touching another person, especially one who would be teaching in the synagogue. But still, with faith and desperation, perhaps unable to contemplate another day feeling the hurt, she was compelled to go near, reach out. In our other story of Jairus' family, it's Jesus who reaches out. Walking into the room, seeing this girl lying still, he took her by the hand. This moment, this is all Jesus. I'm struck by his intuition that this is the way to go about this healing. And what does one do to call another back to life? I would think it's more the Lazarus way. You give some commands, pray, and then you you be loud. He didn't see that as appropriate here. In a quieter moment, parents looking on, deeply hurting and deeply hoping, He resonated with them at their level, taking the girl by the hand as a way to convey that their daughter was precious, made in his image, hand in hand. Not only would Jairus have looked on on this feeling the, the weight of this healer dignifying him enough to come into his house in the first place, but also as a synagogue leader, he may also have considered that touching a dead body would make one unclean. For an observant Jewish leader, the question would have been, who is this law-abiding, faithful man that would not only confidently proclaim that this girl is not dead, but also take her hand? It's like at every moment of Jairus' journey, Jesus was breaking down another wall. In the first place, Jesus responded to Jairus' plea to to come, and and Jesus got up, and he went. And, And the crushing crowds outside, those didn't stop him. The interruption, interruption by this woman while they were en route, that, that just became an affirmation that Jairus wasn't crazy. And the crowds, when they got to the house, that didn't turn Jesus around, but it reframed the way that he might even think about death. And then when actually standing in the room, he leans in further and touches a hand that all other synagogue leaders would call unclean. Think about this for a minute. A god who sits in the heavens and does as he pleases, does not do this. But our God, who sits in the heavens and does as he pleases, he doesn't stay in the heavens only. He joins us in his creation and is pleased himself to enter into his creation in weakness and walk undeterred into our uncleanness. And he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He, he physically touches many more and he heals them until his physical head is crowned with thorns. And his physical feet, his physical hands are nailed to a cross. His back feeling the splinters of wood. In doing so, he ultimately displays his humanity the hurting. He had to be like his brothers in every way to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, in his human death on the cross, he calls each of us to recognize our image of him by repenting of our sins and believing in him as the one who paid for our sin on the cross and makes us not only clean, but also alive and holy. This is because this man was not only a human who died. But as our catechism says in a couple of weeks, he's also truly God who could bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. He rose from the grave. See, the man on the cross, he would have just been another man on a cross if the story had ended there. And the story of the woman touching a man in the middle of a crowd would have simply been a little strange if she walked away unhealed, even if it brought her some comfort. And the story of Jairus' family, it would have been an extremely compassionate home visit had Jesus prayed and left. But because Jesus is truly God, the stories did not end there. In each, Jesus' power displays his deity to the dying. And that's our third point. His power displays his deity to the dying. In our story of the woman, all of her mustering of strength and pushing through the crowds and then reaching out. Her hand is on the tassel of his robe. With that small brush, she's healed. Our text reads that that woman was made well from that moment. And Jesus turns. Despite being this mosh pit of a crowd, he feels this brush of a hand that causes him to, to turn. In Luke, he says, power has come out from me. The woman stands after 12 years healed. A moment prior, she's desperately reaching out for what she believed would stop the bleeding. And Jesus, he tells her, your faith has made you well. Her life changed in an instant. And to be clear, it wasn't the touch that made her well. Jesus says it was her faith Touch may have been the mode of transfer of this power, but if it was just simply the touch, then conceivably all the folks who had been pressing in on him would have walked away in perfect health. His touch certainly displayed his humanity, but this power displayed his deity. For so long she saw doctors without result. Perhaps sometimes thinking she was getting better, maybe for a day or two she had some relief only to be let down the next morning. But this time, the power of God immediately cured her affliction. There was no doubt, Matthew is showing us another indicator of Jesus' divine power to reveal the kingdom breaking into our world. Now in our story of Jairus' family, hope of his daughter getting better was not nearly as long of an exercise. We don't know how long she was sick, but we get the sense that it was not a long time. Perhaps her father told her he was going to get Jesus. There was no action that she could take. By the time Jesus arrived, it was too late for her to do anything. Nobody else could have either. The whole crowd was already into the funeral process. We know from the other Gospels that the healing power does not come immediately with the touch of the girl, Jesus tells her to get up after taking her hand. That just makes it easier easier for us to see that the touch wasn't any cause of healing, but it was just an act of showing compassion. Yet Matthew wants to seem to emphasize here that the power that Jesus was displaying over and over was immediate. So his rendering is that he took her by the hand and the girl arose. It is an immediate restoration of life. What sticks out to me as being uh, as different from being among the crowds here is that Jesus is going to death. It's on his own volition, and he's conquering it. His power to raise her to new life proves his ability to atone for sin and raise completely. Death has no power over him because he is truly God. Indeed, Jesus' power displays his deity to the dying. Connecting divine power to human touch in these two stories gives us the heart of the gospel, where Jesus enters into his creation and begins ushering the kingdom into reality. These are the glimpses of the kingdom that warm our heart and give us hope. Whenever I contemplate Jesus walking with us in this way, I'm completely disarmed by the arguments that might cause me doubt. The God of the universe dignifies lowly people by drawing so near that he can be touched or take the hand of those unable to take his. So what does this mean for us? One, trust that God can and will heal. The healing that both the woman and the girl received was personal. Each was the opposite of some healing spectacle. This is how Jesus often cares for the ones he loves. Sometimes the ways of healing, they're quieter or unexpected or even unexplainable. I told you that my wife, Michelle, had cancer. It was called an olfactory neuroblastoma. It's a brain cancer that typically sits up between the eyes, and then it kind of explodes from there, encompassing the brain. Hers was way further down the nasal cavity, about right here, and it stayed about three millimeters for at least 12 years. There's only two other cases like it that are documented. During the time of these 12 years, her salt levels would plunge to a level that would put most of us into a coma. It resulted in hospital stays, ER visits, and endless appointments. Not to mention constant dizziness and liquid restriction where the doctor said, drink as little as possible. For all those years, nobody could explain the reasoning. Doctors were guessing. And when the mass was finally found, they utterly dismissed any idea that her other health issues were linked. And when the tumor was finally removed, even the doctor who removed it didn't believe the pathology, because it was such a wonder that this cancer would, one, never grow, and two, a pure coincidence that would have affected her salt levels so much. But from that moment, Michelle's salt has been completely normal. Her dizziness almost gone. She can even drink as much water and coke zero as she likes. She's only had good reports since her surgeries. Her healing didn't start with a clean diagnosis or be a type of cancer that was well-funded and researched. The mitigation plan was completely uncharted. Her healing came from her desperate and undeterred diligence to get to the bottom of her illness, along with a small team at University of Chicago to develop a plan. And looking back at it, I see more and more clearly that the rareness of the cancer and more rareness of its behavior showed a powerful God who has the power not only to tell a tumor, stop growing, but also the power to heal a body completely. It's just a small glimpse into the kingdom. Let's take stories like these, let them draw us into the kingdom eagerly awaiting his coming and our full restoration. It will happen whether we are asleep or we're alive, or we are sick or we are healthy. Second, as we wait for his coming, how are we caring like Jesus for those who need healing? Consider the ways you can care for the sick. I did a terrible job of doing this throughout the time that Michelle would describe her symptoms for those 12 years. It became so common that I would downplay when what she often needed was a hug and reassurance that I believed her. Our family is one place that we can care. Our church family too. Let's show mercy to one another. When we're hearing the tone of desperation in our small groups, or maybe if we're interrupted on the the way out to the car, we kind of brush off, or say that's nice, or I'm sorry. Do we stop, turn, and listen? We stop and pray. We say. Do we even give a hug? It's too easy for us to put up walls. There's no doubt that pandemics and politics have exacerbated and created a lot of hesitation to draw near. And how can we move closer like Jesus toward a kingdom life where brothers and sisters consider each other's more highly than ourselves when we see each other in a crowd? Or how can we visit one another in quiet rooms with careful attention? Jesus modeled this way forward, hand in hand, side by side, with him in our midst. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.